The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Welcome to our Wednesday night, Hump Day Night program. It's great to have everybody along with us, and we are excited about tonight's program. We have another returning guest. I'm trying to think, has all week been returning guests? Who did we have on Monday night? We had Chris Newby last night was a returning guest. I'm looking at our sheets here. Doctor, oh yeah, Kenneth Womack talking about uh, John Lennon. That was not a returning guest. That was a great show. Not a returning guest, though. But tonight, Colin Dickey is a returning guest. We're going to be talking about his newest book that's called The Unidentified Mythical Monsters, Alien Encounters, and Our Obsession with the Unexplained. We'll be talking about cryptids, the lost continents of Atlantis and Lemuria, We'll talk about UFOs. We'll talk about ghosts. We'll talk about other Fordian phenomena, including the Great Kentucky Meat Shower of 1876. I've heard about this, and I, uh, I've i heard about this, and it's a fascinating story, and I can't wait to talk about it tonight. You probably have heard about it, too. Please subscribe to the YouTube channel. Go to YouTube, search for J.V. Johnson. You'll find it. It's very simple. Subscribe. There's no fee for that. Also find us on Twitch. Twitch is uh, kind of an up-and-coming video streaming service. It happens to be owned by Amazon. When you find us on Twitch by searching for J.V. Johnson, you will uh, be able to follow. uh, There's no charge or anything for following. uh, But if you want to subscribe, which we encourage you to do, there is a fee for that unless you have Amazon Prime because Twitch is owned by Amazon. Then you can just link your Prime account to it and get it for free which is really cool. We've got a bunch of neat emotes that are part of the subscription, plus it's ad-free, things like that. And it supports the program. And one other way you can support the program is we have a Patreon page. We don't you know, ask people to uh, do that with any uh, seriousness, but we do appreciate it when you do. Go to Patreon and support the program. It helps us cover some of the expenses of putting all this together for you. So it's patreon.com slash johaw if you... Uh, if you uh, feel like you something you want to do, please visit that site and do that for us. So thank you very much If uh, ahead of time if uh, you do that. I, uh, speaking of all this stuff, all this uh, you know, new media and things change faster than you can uh, keep track of. And I know with, with me as well, I, I've been, I was trained in traditional media. I was trained in radio. I spent my whole professional career basically in radio. And uh, you learn things a certain way when you're trained that way. And things are changing all around us, which is fun and exciting. It's just difficult to keep up with. And I don't know why I introduced this particular uh, discussion this way, because today I received an email from what appeared to be Facebook. And it said, uh, if if many of you follow, I've got several Facebook pages. One of them is called um, Paranormal Media, uh, Taps Paranormal Media by J.V. Johnson or something like that. I'm not even (laughs) sure what the exact title is. Um, And that page has a couple hundred thousand followers. And uh, I've been targeted before because I have that many followers from, you know, hackers and people that want to get a hold of the page so that they can can, uh, promote whatever they're promoting. So today I get an email from what appeared to be Facebook, and it says your page has been flagged for posting uh, inaccurate COVID-19 information, and it has been scheduled for deletion because of this violation. And it goes on to say if if you want to challenge it or you want to um, get more information, there's a link there to click. I didn't click the link, but I'm certain the link 
would have brought me to a page that would have looked like a Facebook page login screen, and I would have typed in my username and password, and bam, they would have these hackers would have had my username and password. And within minutes, all of my pages would have been, particularly the ones with uh, high follower count, like uh, the Taps Paranormal um, Media, would have uh, would would no longer be in my control. And the reason I know this is it's happened to me before. It happened uh, a long time ago, and I learned the lesson the hard way. So if you happen to see something like that, I would never, never click through a link on an email and uh, and enter any password, username information. Don't do it. It's 99.9% of them are scams, and it's how they get a hold of your username, password, all that stuff. If you, you know, if, if if I thought there was any legitimacy to this particular email that I got that says my page was going to be deleted because of COVID-19 misinformation, which in today's climate, you can almost believe that they might do something like that, which is ridiculous in itself. But uh, if I thought it was any legitimacy to that, I would have uh, just uh, gone into my Facebook page, you know, through my phone or on my computer, uh, not through a link in this email and looked for some type of message there. So, yeah. So it's ridiculous. And you're absolutely right, Fiddy. I do not need anything else hacked. We've had enough of that. We're still trying to work through the problems with that. But that hacking had nothing to do with us. It's, uh, that was a flaw somewhere on Twitch. So, anyway, I don't mean to preach, but I'm just warning you. Anytime you see anything, I'm getting, uh, there's a whole bunch of, like, uh, text scamming going on as well. People getting uh, texts saying, we have a package for you that we can't deliver, whatever. Click on this link and sort it out well it's just another scam absolute numbers another scam so uh, be very cautious in today's day and age don't give your password or user information to anyone through an email or a text or anything like that if if you think there's a legitimate issue going on then go right to the company that's that is supposedly issuing it whether it's facebook or whatever it happens to be let's do this let's take a break we'll get colin dickey on the line and we'll begin our conversation we're going to be talking about his new book it's called the unidentified mythical monsters alien encounters and our obsession with the unexplained much of what we talk about here is the unexplained so we're gonna have a great conversation tonight with colin it's beyond reality and we will be right back don't go away Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Our guest, Colin Dickey, is a returning guest to the program. He's a cultural historian. We're talking about his newest book. It's called The Unidentified, Mythical Monsters, Alien Encounters, and Our Obsession with the Unexplained. Colin, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's great to have you back with us. Hey, thanks so much for having me back. What have you been up to? I mean, I'm trying to remember when you were on last. It's been, 
I don't know, long enough. To, uh, long enough that back I... in December, it was around. I think it was around Christmas. We were talking about ghosts then, because uh, I'm a, I'm a big believer that uh, that Christmas is a is a good ghost holiday, that's even right. more so than Halloween. I think that's probably the last time we talked. That's right. That was a great. That was a lot of fun. Well, it's great to have you back with us. I assume you're still up to all the same things, doing the same research, obviously writing books uh, since we've talked to you last. Uh, yeah, so this one was, uh, I moved off of ghosts and I moved into, uh, aliens and UFOs and cryptids, Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, that kind of stuff. And then, uh, the, uh, the lost continents of Atlantis and Lemuria. I mean, it's, it's a natural thing to do when you have a curiosity, whether it's about ghosts or whatever it happens to be, that same curiosity applies to all of those other things that you mentioned. If you're curious about one thing, you're probably going to be curious about all of those things. Yeah, I mean, I was actually, I was really actually surprised because, I mean, I think, like, you know, belief in ghosts, that's something that, that you find, you know, across, across the world in every culture and every country, you find it, you know, way back, as long as we've been keeping records, we've been, you know, recording ghost stories. And I thought... You know, but, I, you know, like, and I, I grew up on, on, you know, Bigfoot and Loch Ness Monster and, like, you know, UFOs and stuff. But I kind of thought when I started this project, I thought that some of that stuff had kind of died down, that people, you know, those weren't as sort of, you know, prevalent, uh, you know, uh, these days. But it, it turns out that, no, like, you know, when I started sort of poking into it, it's like there, that people are more and more believing, you know, in, in that, you know, Bigfoot exists, that, you know, aliens visited this planet and, you know, whatever, ancient Egypt and stuff like that. So I got way more fascinated because I, I, I kind of assumed this stuff had kind of gone away. And in fact, it's sort of roaring back in the last couple of years. Yeah, it really has in a lot of different ways. It's making a lot of pop cultural inroads in addition to uh, people like yourself researching and writing about it. Uh, obviously, we're seeing it on this program a lot. But let's talk about our fascination with these things. What is it about the unexplained that just fascinates almost everybody uh, in some way or another. You know, what, what was interesting for me when I started kind of looking into this, I mean, I, as I said, you know, ghost, belief in ghosts, we've always believed in ghosts. That's, that's a solid part of human existence. But, you know, like cryptids are, are much more recent phenomenon. I don't think that cryptids really come onto the scene until like the 20th century. So I wanted to kind of figure out, I mean, we used to believe in like, you know, like monsters in a kind of, you know, kind of medieval sense, right? You sort of picture the, the medieval map of the world and there'd be like, you know, dragons and weird things kind of lurking on the margins. But those seemed like, I was like, are those the same things as, you know, as, as like Bigfoot? Is that, you know, so I, I kind of wanted to maybe sort of try and understand where these things kind of came from. And it, it, seemed, it seemed to me, you know, the, the conclusion I came to is that, you know, what happens in, in like the 19th century is that there's, you know, science and religion kind of split off from one another, and each one kind of, kind of pretends that it, it sort of completely understands the world. You know, it's, it's got a system that completely understands everything. And when that happens, there's still a bunch of weird stuff left on the table, you know, kind of stuff in the middle that, you know, science doesn't have great answers for, religion doesn't really seem to want to touch, but it's, it's there. And, you know, what, what became the kind of focus of this book is this, you know, the stuff that's almost kind of the, the leftover, the remainders, you know, that, that, that we can't quite slot into these other kind of belief systems, but yet kind of stubbornly persist one way or another. Are the most fascinating questions the ones that we know we will probably never get an answer to, despite how hard we try to get, we get theories, we get ideas, but it, true, hard and fast answers are, are near impossible for some of these questions. 
Oh yeah, and that's a, you know that's the thing is I you know I you know I tried to as best I could try and you know figure out if I could understand what was happening with a lot of these cases and you know some of the stuff it you know it's a little you know like I don't know that that photograph was probably faked or I don't know if that guy was a particularly reliable eyewitness but right. yeah I kept coming back to these these stories and and in some ways they were the ones that surprised me they weren't the ones I was thinking were going to be you know the real unsolved mysteries but I kept coming back to like. The, you know, the Gloucester Sea Serpent of, you know, 1817 as like, you know, like I just, like, what is it? What, what, what happened? And it, yeah, I mean, I think there are these stories that I think are always going to be just outside the reach of what we can know and yet not so far out that we can dismiss them entirely. And that's, that's the stuff that I, you know, I, I really love tracking down in this book and writing about. The, um, you know, one thing that mankind has been searching for forever are answers to things like, is there life after death? You know, these these more mystical or spiritual questions have always plagued them until they start. When I say they, I mean, mankind is introduced to things like the Loch Ness Monster or things like a, a, a round disc that they see flying through the sky that they can't explain. And then our attention has changed a little bit. But it's all it all comes from, I imagine, the same part of our being that is thirsty for answers. Right. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think you hit it when you say that, you know, like, when we, we talk about ghosts, it's like, you know, is there life after death? You know, what happens, uh, what happens to ourselves after we die? And what, what is that all about? Those, you know, that, that's the kind of question that I think, you know, belief in or, you know, the, the idea of a ghost really sort of provokes in us. Whereas, like, with, a, with, with UFOs or aliens, it's like, you know, what is it? It's kind of a different question. It's like, what, what does it mean to be human? What are these other things that, you know, look like us and maybe they could communicate to us, but they're not us. They're different. And they, you know, like in the, like in the 50s, people thought of, you know, as you know, they thought of aliens as like, you know, guys with flowing blonde hair and silver jumpsuits. They look like us, right? right. They were just like, right. they just had better cars, right? You know, and then that <laughs> right. sort of, by the 80s, we had this totally different vision of these, you know, kind of triangle head dudes with big eyes and long skinny bodies that were, you know, like, so like, you know, we've, we've kind of, how we see aliens kind of changes over the years. And I thought that was kind of a fascinating kind of reflection of almost like how we see ourselves in the process. Some of the mysteries that you talk about, and we're going to get into a lot of the stuff that you've included in the book, um, but some of them, you know, are are what we would call chronic um, head scratchers. Some of them are time related. In other words, you know, it, the lost continent of Atlanta, Atlantis was was lost to time, if in fact it was. Um, you know, some of the mysteries like, and I'm, I'm not sure we're going to talk about this tonight, but things like the pyramids, obviously they were created. We just don't know how because that secret has been lost to time. How much of what you looked into is relative to being lost to time? Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. I mean, you know, you, you know the Freudian term, you know, the uncanny, right? You know, the uncanny is yeah. this idea that something is sort of like it's close to normal, but there's something just a little bit off, and that thing that's off is like makes it even creepier. You know, like a like the way that a doll is uncanny, and a doll is uncanny because it it looks like a human, but it's just it's just off in just enough way that it's actually kind of creepy. And I think that like kind of what you're saying, I think a lot of this has to do with like the past has become a kind of, in some ways, a kind of uncanny space for us, right? Like it sort of, it, it looks like, it looks like us and it, it's, it's close to who we are, but it's off or it's weird or it's different in some way. And that's actually like, 
even weirder than if it if it made no sense whatsoever. So I think I think when you're talking about like things that are lost to time, a lot of times I think it's like the stuff that has that kind of uncanny resonance to us. It's like it's close to who we are, it's close to how we think, but it's yet it's just different enough that it's actually like it provokes all these questions like what well where you know how did this thing get here and where did it come from and what does it mean and what are we supposed to do with it and that kind of stuff. One of the things that's always made me curious about being curious is how much of our curiosity stems from just wanting an answer versus how much of our curiosity stems from uh, fear of the unknown. And as long as something remains unknown, we have this natural fear. So therefore, we want to explain it so that we don't have to fear it. Yeah, that's. I mean, I th- again, I think that's a really good point. I think, uh, you know, like this book eventually kind of I moved into kind of modern conspiracy theories and, you know, kind of particularly around around UFOs, right? Because you kind of can't believe in in aliens without also believing somehow that there's like a government conspiracy, right? Like you've kind of, they, they go hand in hand. And one of the things I think I've, I've found about conspiracy theories is like, it is almost like, it is more reassuring to think there's a terrible, malevolent conspiracy theory that's like controlling every our every action and every thought. That's almost more reassuring than the idea that that it's there's an unknown, right? The un, the fear of the unknown is almost even worse than you know some horrible government conspiracy that's like you know ruining our lives or something like that. If that makes sense. So yeah, I think there is that kind of deep fear of the unknown that drives some of this. And then I think the flip side is there's also that like that craving for the unknown. Like you know like there's you know it's it's, it's you see something, you see something weird, you want to know the answer, and then almost as soon as you know the answer, you're like, oh, that's kind of a letdown. You know, it's like it's like figuring out how a card trick works. It's not, it's, you want that kind of unknown. You want that kind of, that, that mystery. And I think we go, we go searching for it even when we sometimes already know the answers. And when you started to uh, think about the concept for this book, how did you come to the idea of writing this particular uh, piece? I mean, so I started with just a big grab bag of, you know, various conspiracy theories and other, you know, I guess, uh, you know, what, what, we, what we call like Fortean beliefs, you know, sort of the stuff that Charles Ford, you know, kind of put on the map. And I, I, had, a, I had a whole big pile of things. I, you know, I was going to talk about like, you know, the guys who believe in, in the, the earth being flat and a bunch of other stuff. And what I finally settled on, I think the thing that connected it was like, all of this stuff is, you know, like I, I like to think of it as like, like it's the stuff that's out in the, the edges of civilization, right? You know, like where, because like if you think about like, you know, where is Bigfoot? Bigfoot is like in the northern, uh, northern California, you know, redwood forests, which are unfortunately on fire right now. But, you know, the, it's sort of just outside of San Francisco. It's just outside of civilization. Or like, you know, Area 51 is in the Nevada desert, sort of just outside of Las Vegas. So I, 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 there's a kind of... The thing that seemed to connect all these things is this, this idea that these were places that were kind of out on the frontiers and out on the edges, and, and they were just on the edge of civilization, but in this kind of weird wilderness, kind of weird marginal place. And I think that there's something like really like alluring and kind of exciting and kind of fascinating about those kinds of places, and they, they tend to be the places that we find these kind of, you know, these strange denizens that seem to sort of inhabit these kind of spaces right on the edge the um ideas of cryptids you know we've 
thrown some names out already, uh, Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, Jersey Devil, things like that, UFOs, and then also things like Lost Continents. These seem to be very, very different ideas, but you uh, you view them um, all kind of in the same basket in the sense that these are the things that we are obsessed about as being unexplained. How did you connect the, all these things together? Yeah, well, you know, like, you know, the uh, one of the places I went to is, is Mount Shasta. And I don't know if, if people out there have been to Mount Shasta, but it is, um, it's, I mean, it's strikingly beautiful. It's a gorgeous mountain in, you know, Northern California, right in the edge of Oregon. And it's also, um, according to some, it's, it's the, the last remnant of the lost continent of Lemuria. Mm-hmm. And underneath Mount Shasta is the, the city of Telos, where the Lemurians live. And it's, and I found, you can find descriptions of Lemurians, and sometimes they're described as these kind of eight-foot-tall, hairy creatures that don't speak any language but kind of, you know, roam around the mountains. And sometimes they're described as uh, sort of flying around in these in these ships that come in and out of Telos. And it's like, uh, suddenly it just like hit me. I was like, oh, this is like, this is, you know, the Lemurians are sort of simultaneously, they're simultaneously aliens, they're simultaneously Bigfoot, they're kind of all these things kind of, condensed together, you know, and so you see kind of throughout these different, you know, if you, if you kind of follow these, these stories through, through the decades and see how they sort of relate to each other, they all, all kind of, you know, tend to overlap. I mean, like, you know, that the, the first big, um, you know, uh, story about UFOs and aliens um, out of Amazing Stories, the, the, the uh, science fiction magazine in the 1940s is called I Remember Lemuria, right? So there's like, there's all these sort of weird connections that I kept finding that I felt like these stories tended to kind of overlap and influence each other in these kind of weird ways. Tell us a little bit more about Lemuria. I mean, most people have heard of Atlantis, but not everybody has heard of Lem- about Lemuria. Yeah, I think Lemuria is a really weird kind of fun story. I mean, yeah, so it's. I mean, the easiest way to think of it is, is like it's the Atlantis of the Pacific Ocean, right? It's a, it's a, it's also sort of theorized as a, as a lost continent, and like what it was, the name comes from this 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 geologist in the in the 1860s who was trying to figure out why there are lemurs in Madagascar and in India, but not in Africa, and he proposes, well, what if there was like a kind of land bridge that connected Madagascar and India, and then it subsequently sank, so he calls it Lemuria, and like you know that that I. Geologists are like, yeah, we don't, we don't really buy that. So it gets kind of dropped in mainstream science, but it gets picked up. It gets picked up by the theosophists, um, particularly, you know, like uh, Madame Blavatsky and other people who sort of, sort of see it as this maybe sort of lost mythical place where these kind of, uh, you know, either sort of super advanced or maybe not quite as advanced kind of humans, you know, once lived. And so that's, you know, eventually it gets kind of worked into kind of you know, California mythology, which is how Mount Shasta becomes the home of of the Lemurians. There's this guy, um, uh, Harvey Spencer Lewis, who uh, who built the uh, Rosicrucian Museum in San Jose, California, where I grew up, which is this cool, strange Egyptian temple. It's got all this, like, cool Egyptology stuff. Uh, but he was a big believer that, that California was itself the, the last remnant of Lemuria, that it somehow sort of drifted into North America and, and kind of crashed into it, and, and thus you could find, you know, traces of Lemuria if you went sort of hunting around in the kind of California wilderness. That might explain why California is so strange. That might be the first explanation yeah. I've heard. <laughs> um, yeah, well, and, and, you know, he's like, he's like, this is what makes California so great. Like, he's like a real <laughs> booster for the state. He should have, you know, like done like 
tourism for them because he's like, California is amazing because it's populated by Lemurians. It's great. <laughs> um, you know, it's funny. I don't know what the theories are. I mean, you've just given us uh, a, a couple, a little bit of information there. Uh, but when somebody says, yeah, it's not possible for a civilization to just disappear, et cetera, you know, whatever the, the skeptics say, I often point to uh, Pompeii. I mean, a whole uh, city was basically buried in a blink of an eye. And, uh, you know, it was it wasn't um, if, if it wasn't so close to Rome, nobody would have known it ever existed. And, uh, you know, it, just look at how a natural disaster like that can completely swallow up, you know, thousands of people instantly. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I think we're like even, you know, like very mainstream traditional archaeology and, you know, geology. I mean, we're still learning stuff all the time. And in fact, when I was almost done with this book, I, I found you know, there are news reports that, you know, like they think that maybe they have found something that may be the lost continent of Lemuria out in the Indian Ocean. And it's not like not some fantastical civilization home to, you know, crazy advanced humans. But it is like, you know, this this continent that had like, you know, sort of shifted or broken up or dissolved or somehow sort of, you know, like got subsumed into continental drift or whatever. But, you know, it sort of fits the pattern of what they think Lemuria, you know, should have looked like. So, yeah, like, we're finding this stuff all the time. We're always finding kind of new and strange discoveries. And I think, like, I think the mistake is to think that, like, science has got it all figured out and it's all done, when, in fact, we're, we're constantly learning things every, every year. There are some people from the 19th and early 20th century that are kind of important, and you talk about them at length in the first part of the book. Let's take them one at a time. Charles Fort um, and, and his last name, Fort, is where we get the uh, the descriptive term of Fortian, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like, you know, there, there's this term that sort of evolves in the early 20th century. It's, you know, it's a crank, right? You know, a crank is somebody who um, has some kind of theory about the world that sort of looks scientific, but maybe it's, you know, not recognized by mainstream science. And you, you, you get... Um, you get scientists at the time, you know, sort of writing about cranks and how sort of annoying they are. And Charles Fort was, he started as a journalist, but then he decided he was going to be a, he was, he, in his own words, he was going to be a crank. He wanted to be a crank. <laughs> he, he wrote this one book um, that I was something about how, like, uh, Martians control our behavior through radio waves or something like that. But it, he couldn't get it published and, uh, you know, burn the manuscript. So we don't, we only know what it was through, like, letters that he wrote and stuff like that. But he kind of, he kind of can't quite make it as a as as sort of you know ex- kind of pushing out these kind of radical strange theories. So instead, what he does is he he writes this book in 1919 called The Book of the Damned, which is I mean if I'm, again I, I'm, I assume a bunch of you, your listeners have have read it, but if they haven't, man, you gotta you gotta read this book right away. It's so good. But it's you know basically what he does is he just gathers up all this weird stuff he keeps finding in news reports and scientific journals, the stuff that doesn't make any sense. And, you know, and, and he calls it the Book of the Damned. He says, this is a, this, these are the facts that are damned by science. They're sort of not allowed. They're, they've been excluded from the narrative because they don't, you know, fit. They don't make sense. But one way or another, we got to take them seriously. You know, like they, they happened, and here they are, and I don't know what they mean, and you don't know what they mean either, but somebody's got to at least talk about them. And so that's, you know, the Book of the Damned is just this great catalog of all the stuff that you found, everything from, like, you know, frogs falling from the sky, which is kind of the most famous thing he's known for, um, you know, but, you know, fish that turn into blood and, you know, weird, just 
you know, strange goings on and ball lightning and the Bermuda Triangle and just all this stuff comes out of like Charles Fort just kind of combing through the records, finding these strange little, you know, bits and pieces and news reports and sort of gathering them all up together. How do you do that in the um, time period that he was doing it? It's hard enough to do it with the Internet available to us. I can't even imagine doing that kind of research and that kind of work in a time when you had to go, uh, you know, comb through newspapers that you'd probably have to travel to the location or have them mailed to you in one form or another to get a copy of them. Well, so Charles Fort was really lucky because he lived in New York and um, this is the 19 teens and in 1912, the New York mm-hmm. public library opened and mm-hmm. he was like, he just, you know, it was one of those like, just like perfect marriages of, you know, the New York public library and Charles Fort, because what he would do is he would just go there every morning and they have just this amazing periodical stack. And he would just, he would read and he would make wow. these notes um, on, you know, in, these, in this little, you know, tiny cryptic handwriting, these little slips of paper that then he would go home and he would stuff in these like kind of, you know, pigeonholes that he had all around his apartment and this sort of Byzantine filing system that he has. And like, so if you, if you, well, I don't know what, what the status is now, but you know, normal non-pandemic times, you can go and you can see these, um, these flips of paper because the New York Public Library has them. Uh, they were donated after his death. So, so one of the, one of the best things I did for the research is I got to go and sort of look at Charles Ford's handwriting and try and decipher these little crazy notes. And like, you know, there's all sorts of stuff in there that like, I found that, you know, wasn't in any of his books. So it's like, was this stuff not weird enough to make it into a book? Or was this, you know, maybe for a future book that he didn't get around to write? Or like, what do you do with all this crazy stuff? And so, like, it was a cool sort of experience. And, and again, like, you just get this sense of this guy who, who just sees the world and sort of reads these things in a way that, you know, nobody else had really done before that. It's pretty, it's fascinating. And it's it's admirable that, that people uh, braved reputation and uh, in some cases, scorn to research and then write about this type of thing. But what's important here is how much of research did you do into this this attitude that science has now? And at some point, it it copted this attitude or copped this attitude uh, where it almost puts its hand in the face of anybody who has an idea that may be a little bit out of the mainstream. Yeah, it's a weird. Again, it's a weird. It was a weird time. I think that like the the late nineteenth century, there there were so many things going on that now we just kind of take for granted. Yeah. But like, you know, you think about it, like you know, I don't know, two hundred years ago, three hundred years ago, like if you were if you were a guy with a telescope and you know a little bit of spare time, you could you could make all kinds of new scientific discoveries, right? You know, I mean, there was just so yeah. much that was just unknown then, and you know, people were just sort of discovering things left and right. I mean you know, kind of dilettantes like Benjamin Franklin and stuff like that, you know. And so what happens in the, in the, in the second half of the 19th century is you get, you know, what, I, what I, I guess I would call the sort of institutionalization of science. Like science is now a kind of thing that requires a Ph.D. and a lab and some grant funding and, you know, like all this stuff that, it, you know, and, and again, it's, it's important stuff. I mean, we, you know, we wouldn't get we wouldn't get, you know, cures for diseases. We wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't understand the solar system without this kind of stuff. But it does stop being a kind of uh, place for amateurs to play around in, and it starts to be a kind of, you know, professionalized, organized institution. And I think what one of the weird side effects from that is this kind of backlash and this kind of revolt among people like, you know, like Charles Ford and like, you know, other people who are just like, 
who see that as kind of a personal affront that they they're sort of being locked out of you know the that kind of joy of of kind of you know pursuing these kind of scientific beliefs and so they they tend to sort of be on the outside with a kind of more kind of i guess you know confrontational attitude i guess tell us about ignatius donnelly yeah ignatius donnelly so ignatius donnelly um is really the first guy who gives us the idea of the continent of atlantis right like you know like atlantis gets mentioned first in um in plato's uh, dialogues like the ancient greek philosopher like you know socrates is like talking about this you know this continent of atlantis but he kind of it's kind of like it's kind of a myth it's like a story he's telling it's kind of philosophical idea he's it's not clear that that plato thought this was a real place but like ignatius donnelly so he is a kind of failed land speculator in the you know 1850s who then goes into congress and he serves in congress for a couple of years from minnesota um, and then eventually he leaves congress and he sort of He's looking for like a third act, and he stumbles upon this story of Atlantis, and he writes this book uh, in 1874, um, you know, called Atlantis: The Lost Continent, in which he proposes, you know, you know, unlike Plato, unlike you know, that this is not just like a mythical idea or something, but this was like a real place, and he sort of he uh, he sort of proposes, you know, the kind of geology and the archaeology and the culture, and he you know, kind of grabs all this stuff together, and he's not, I mean, he's not a trained archaeologist, he's just kind of, you know, again, it's just kind of the sense of like, you know, anybody should be able to do this stuff. You shouldn't need a degree to do this. And so Ignatius Donnelly, you know, kind of, you know, he's the first person to kind of put this forward. And it's, it's a huge bestseller. People are totally fascinated by this idea. And that kind of sets in motion this idea that, you know, Atlantis might actually be a real place. So would, would he, could we, could we fairly and accurately say that he introduced it to pop culture? Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have Aquaman, you wouldn't have, you know, uh, you know, resorts in the in the Caribbean called Atlantis if it wasn't for Ignatius Donnelly. Like he really like he he pulls it out of, you know, Greek philosophy and yeah. he, he brings it to the rest of the world and says, like, look, this is this is a real place. And, and you know, everybody from like, you know, Charles Darwin to like, you know, the mayor of London are like reading it and like sending him letters saying, you know, I mean, some of them are like, ah, it seems a little sketchy, but other people are like, yeah, I'm, I'm totally convinced. And that's really, you know, Ignatius Donnelly really gave us the concept of Atlantis. And, and since that time, you know, people have done some serious investigation and research on the idea of a continent that existed that we call Atlantis. And there's been some physical evidence to prove uh, that it might be true. Um, did you get to look into any of that? Um, yeah. I mean, there's, yeah, as you say, I mean, there's been a lot of stuff. Uh, um, there's, I, there's another great book that I highly recommend by uh, this guy, Mark McAdams, who um, wrote a, wrote a history about, kind of the contemporary researchers of Atlantis, you know, he followed some guys who are like very clear about where they think it is. They've got coordinates, they've got, you know, they've, they've got all this stuff. And, and I kind of, you know, I stayed a little bit away from the contemporary stuff because I feel like Mark's book really kind of nailed that. And I didn't want to like, you know, redo what he'd already done. But sure. I, you know, what I think I found like really interesting about Atlantis is this idea that it, um, it, you know, as I was saying before, what what seems to be the real draw is it, it's always going to be not quite reachable, right? You know, like it's sort of like like the world keeps getting kind of closer and closer, and you know, with kind of globalization, sort of everything gets like you know more and more kind of collected together, 
And Atlantis is always, there's never going to be like a Starbucks in Atlantis, right? There's never going to be a McDonald's <laughs> right. in Atlantis. There's always going to be this place that is like, you know, as you were saying before, sort of like, like outside of time or it's sort of, you know, it's this kind of this uncanny presence that's, that's close to us, but yet always just a little bit outside of our reach. And I think that's part of the reason I think why we're kind of so interested in, we kind of keep coming back to it because we'll never, we'll never get there. You know what I mean? Like it's always going to be like one more train stop away. Where is the uh, the prevailing thought of the location of Atlantis? Uh, you know, as I said, I've seen different things. Uh, you know, it's usually somewhere in the Mediterranean, right. kind of uh, off of North Africa a little bit. But it, it, you know, again, it sort of seems to shift depending on who you're you're talking to, and and it, and also, you know, people go out and then they kind of don't find what they're looking for, so then they got to kind of retool their their model a little bit. So it's, it seems to kind of float a little bit somewhere in, in the Mediterranean, just north of Africa, I think. Madam Blavatsky? Who is Madam Blavatsky? So, yeah, Madam Blavatsky is another sort of like, again, I got like when I, when I think about kind of, you know, the kind of fringe culture that, you know, is, is, is so prevalent in, in pop culture right now and sort of driving things like, you know, the X-Files and Ancient Aliens and all the stuff that like is really kind of present you know, I kept coming back to the, these three people. I kept coming back to Ignatius Donnelly, Charles Fort, and Madame Blavatsky as, as these kind of three figures who really um, kind of, set, you know, sowed the seeds for, for kind of a lot of what we believe now, or at least a lot of what we're interested in now. And so she was like, she starts as a, um, as a spiritualist, but then she kind of differentiates herself from spiritualists. She doesn't like the idea that, like, you know, there's sort of life after death. That just doesn't interest her in the same way. She's more interested in this idea that there are like, there's been a kind of evolution of of humanity from a kind of higher evolved state through a kind of steadily devolving evolution into like who we are now, right? And so we're we're now kind of semi-corrupt beings that aren't as pure and perfect as we used to be, and and maybe we can you know, through the teachings of Blavatsky and, and theosophy, theosophy, sorry, uh, which is the kind of religion that she creates, you know, it's this idea of, like, this is how we can get back to this earlier kind of state of being. But she really kind of, she's the one who really introduces the idea that there are these kind of other races of sort of beings, you know, maybe they're kind of Bigfoot-looking or maybe they're kind of alien-looking, but she kind of first puts that out there and that, that seems to take root, or at least it resonates for people, you know, with what they see later on. So I think she kind of gives us that in this kind of weird way. What was it about the end of the 19th century into the beginning of the 20th century that there was such a, um, I don't know what the word is, but you've got people like Charles Fort, Madame Blavatsky, and Ignatius Donnelly all thinking outside of the box. Is it because there were so many uh, new discoveries and things being invented that technology was changing so fast that people started to think anything was possible? Was that was that part of it at all? I think, that, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think there was a kind of massive kind of, you know, series of kind of technological shifts and, like, discoveries and, like, you know, like the world just changed really fast, you know, in, in a in a dramatic couple of decades. I mean, you think of like, think of where the world was in like 1865 versus where it was at like 1910. I mean, just like leaps and bounds, right? And so, you know, people were, were, were sort of looking for the next big thing because the next big thing kept coming. So it was sort of not irrational or weird to think that they were going to, 
we were all going to discover something new and dramatic, you know, in a week from now because, you know, everything seemed up for grabs. I think the other thing I would say, you know, is that there's, there's this, um, there's this sense, you know, I, I think I, I mentioned this before that the world was kind of becoming less magical, right? You know, I mean, the, we, we had kind of mapped the world. There wasn't anything left to discover. There wasn't anywhere left to go, right? They're like, we had kind of figured out all the nooks and crannies of the world. And like, I think people began to look for and kind of yearn for a magic that they felt that maybe like modern life was like kind of robbing from them, if that makes sense. Like there was no sense now that like, you know, there was some sort of kind of magical frontier beyond which we wouldn't know exactly what that, what was out there. And so people started to kind of look for that and, and kind of imagine other ways for that kind of magical frontier to persist. Yeah, I think that's a good point, too, and I think we're seeing that today. And, and you said, you know, look at 1865 to 1910. We probably could could do a pretty interesting comparison to look at 1965 to 2010 and the technological uh, advancements that we've seen in our lifetime here, almost as head-spinning, I would say. And there is a, you know, a call among people now saying, okay, we need to start stepping away from our screens. We we almost yearn for the simplicity prior to smartphones and prior to computers running everything. And uh, I can I can almost take that attitude and put it on to 1910 America as well. Oh, yeah, I think that's a great parallel. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right that, like, the more we become kind of locked into modern life, you know, in whatever form it's taking in our lifetime, right? You know, like, yeah, for us, it's like iPhones and Internet and social media and stuff like that. The more that becomes, like, dominated to us, the more we start to kind of kind of yearn for and imagine something that's, that's kind of the opposite. And so I think, you know, the kind of rise that we, we've seen in the past, you know, 10 years or so of, of people who, you know, style themselves as, you know, Bigfoot hunters or Bigfoot researchers or people who want to go out into the forest and look for, you know, a Sasquatch or something like that. I mean, I think that part of that, I think, is just like a almost a rejection of, you know, you know, I don't know, your iPhone and your, you know, your Facebook account, just kind of wanting to get off grid and sort of find that thing that, you know, like doesn't, doesn't exist in, in modern life that is sort of a, a, a complete, you know, kind of repudiation of modern life. Tonight we've got Colin Dickey with us. He's a cultural historian. He's written a lot of books, including the one we're talking about tonight, The Unidentified Mythical Monsters, Alien Encounters, and Our Obsession with the Unexplained. He's also got books called Ghostland and American History in Haunted Places, Afterlives of the Saints, Stories from the Ends of Faith, and Cranioclepti, Grave Robbing and the Search for genius, um, I I think that when you were on, uh, as you said, near Christmas time, was Ghostland relatively new at that point, Colin? Uh, I'm trying I, to remember. I think no, I think Ghostland came out in 2016. So I okay. mean, a couple of years, you know. Okay. Not, you know I remember talking. Yeah, you know? I remember talking about that, oh, and I, I think we may have talked about uh, the grave robbing book as well. Uh, that was about a, a particularly about a story. Um, about an individual, I, I'm trying to remember. Tell me, tell us what what cranioclepti is. Yeah, no, this is I, 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 it was blew my mind that that nobody had really discussed this. What I what I found, I kept finding stories that um, true stories in the the early 19th century about how uh, various people had stolen the heads of famous right. writers and musicians. So uh, so Mozart and uh, Franz Joseph Haydn, the composer. Uh, Emanuel Swedenborg, the writer Thomas Brown, and uh, parts of Beethoven's skull uh, were stolen 
by various people, many of whom were uh, phrenologists, which is, you know, the whole thing that, like, the bumps on your head determine your personality. And so they were trying to get the heads of uh, genius composers and writers to see if they could kind of scope out the bumps that would, you know, lead to musical genius and whatnot. And it was just, it was just like this crazy story that, like, it, it, if it if had been one time, it would have been a weird curiosity. But instead it was like a bunch of times, and it kept happening, and I kept finding more and more stories. I mean, that Franz Joseph Haydn, uh, a friend of his, waited until he was, like, had been dead for, like, five days before uh, bribing the gravedigger to dig up his corpse. Sorry, this is gross, but, you know, dig up his corpse, decapitate his body, and then he, you know, this, this friend of his, this guy, uh, Carl Rosenbaum, uh, made off with Franz Joseph Haydn's head, which he, he cleaned and, you know, parsed down to a bleached skull, and then he put the skull in a glass case on his mantle and, you know, kept it there for the next couple of decades. And I was just trying to imagine doing that to a friend of mine, and I just couldn't quite figure out how I would sort of, you know, you know kind of get behind that activity. But that, uh, that, was, a, that was a thing that I, I kept coming across, so I ended up writing a book about it, yeah. This, uh, I'm listening to you tell this story. I had never heard of it before. Is this actually true? Oh yeah, no, it's one hundred percent true, and it's it's um, the I mean the the guy Carl Rosenbaum he uh, he kept a very detailed diary, and in fact you know he knew he was going to do this, so he actually did a test run uh, about a year before Heidi died on an actress uh, whom he he dug up her body, he you know cut off her head, he he tried to clean the the skull himself, although. Um, it got a little moldy, I think, in the process. He described oh. in his diary that you know got a little greenish, and so we don't really know what happened to her head. But you know, the the second time around, the second time's a charm. You know, when he got Haydn's skull, he had it professionally cleaned, and uh, <laughs> yeah, and he and he he's no shame about putting it in his in his diary. And you know, I mean, same thing with uh, Emanuel Swedenborg, who is this you know Swedish mystic who died in London, was buried in London, and his head was actually stolen twice by two different people. Uh, and it led to this uh, uh, scientific conundrum in the early uh, 20th century where people were trying to figure out which which head was the authentic Swedenborg cranium so they could figure out wh- which one to rebury with the rest of his body. So, yeah, this stuff is all like, you know, it was all true. It was all talked about. And yet, you know, nobody had really thought to ask why, at least that I've, you know, before before I came along, you know, nobody really thought to ask, you know, what, what connects all of these strange stories of stealing people's skulls and and why would you do that so that's what i tried to figure out myself when i was uh in grade school we had these book fairs or whatever the the service would come around and the kids could walk into the gym and it would be all these books on tables and you could take two books and they were yours and yeah i remember those and one of the books that came out when i was that age uh, that was available, that became, you know, they couldn't keep them in stock because every kid wanted one, it was called The Book of Lists. Do you remember that book? No, I don't. Tell me about it. It was kind of like a Guinness Book of World Records, but it basically just had lists. And one of the lists in that book that I remember distinctly, although I don't remember uh, what was on the list, but it was it was a list of uh, body parts of famous people that had been um, saved after their death. And there were oh, a lot of really strange ones, um, and I don't remember the, the the list, but I remember there were a bunch from Napoleon that had been t- 
taken from his body and saved after his death and things like that. And that, you know, that that list as a kid, I mean, I was a young kid reading this thing. It kind of creeped me out like crazy thinking that these body parts were removed. And you just made me relive that with this story you told. Amazing. I mean, I don't know. I don't know exactly what um, age demographic this book was pitched to, but I, I know that there was, there's, there was one body part in particular, Napoleon, that was saved. Yes, I know which one you're talking <laughs> <Maybe> about. <laughs> and that was on the list. And I remember that distinctly. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> That's funny. Anyway, so I, before the break, I teased uh, one of the stories that you write about in the book, or uh, and, and particularly uh, Charles Fort wrote about it as well. Is it's called the Great Kentucky Meat Shower, and my chat room went nuts when I when I said that with all sorts of jokes and stuff. Tell us what the the Great Kentucky Meat Shower was. I mean, again, this is like this is when you know the, doing the research for for a book like this just really pays off because yeah, I came across that phrase. I mean, first years ago in Charles Floyd, you know, the Great Kentucky Meat Shower, and immediately I was like, I need to know everything that there is to know about it. So, you know, okay, so basically the, the story is, you know, in, in, in March of 1876 in this little town called Olympia Springs, Kentucky, which is right on the border of West Virginia, uh, this, this woman, uh, Mrs. Crouch and her grandson are out one day. It's a, it's a clear, uh, you know, clear sky, cloudless day, and all of a sudden it starts to rain meat from the sky, chunks of meat, you know, maybe at most a couple inches in diameter, and uh, it just starts raining meat. And the meat, I mean, it's over, uh, you know, like a, maybe like a 100-square-foot patch of land. Um, and the thing about the Great Kentucky Meat Shower is, like, you know, you, you, a lot of the stuff you could say, well, that's a hoax, or, you know, maybe they hallucinated it or something. But this, one way or another, the Great Kentucky Meat Shower absolutely happened because the whole town came out. They gathered up, like, the samples of meat. <laughs> There were uh, there were two incredibly brave souls that I, again, this is one of the things I can't even fathom what goes through a man's mind. But two guys actually tried to, to eat the meat to see if they could identify it through taste. Uh, neither one of them got very far, um, you know. Although apparently the the, the farm animals uh, ate some of the meat and only the dog got sick. The rest of them, you know, didn't have a problem with it. Um, and so so right. So this this becomes a question like where does this meat come from, right? And 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 there's you know there's a, a a fierce and lively debate in a bunch of scientific journals where like you know scientists and biologists and you know naturalists are writing back and forth and they're saying you know well I think it's I think it's you know frog spawn or I think it's uh, you know some some specific kind of a fungus or something you know like various things and you know none, none of that makes you know none of that holds too much water there's there's somebody gets a sample of it and is able to determine you know under a microscope that it is most likely uh, either horse meat or human infant, um, human which infant? apparently looks a lot. Yeah, human infant, which apparently looks a lot like horse meat under the microscope. So um, I don't know what to make of that. Uh. Although, although the the ramifications are pretty disturbing, and so so again, you know, like you know, the science scientists kind of they they have a, a couple of solutions and there there is a, a a kind of accepted explanation of what happened on that day but i frankly don't quite buy it um the the story is that it was most likely a pack of vultures who who group vomited um that uh apparently vultures when they when they need to you know gain altitude they will lighten the load by 
you know, vomiting the contents of their stomach. But, you know, if that was the case, you know, then the eyewitnesses would have, you know, reported seeing a bunch of vultures flying overhead, and and there were were no reports of that. You know, there's no, like, that. it would take a lot of vultures to throw up that much meat, and there was just no indication that anybody saw a huge pack of, you know, giant birds flying overhead. So, I, you know, I, I come back to the, the great Kentucky meat shower because it's like it happened. We know it happened. We know what it was. We have some theories for what, what caused it, but none of them fit, you know, perfectly. None of them fit well enough to, the, you know, where you can kind of just dust your hands and say, you know, case closed. And I think, you know, that's the kind of story that I think is, is a really kind of cool and fascinating one and one worth kind of keeping in the forefront of your mind. Those types of stories, yeah. Also totally gross. Those, yeah, those types of stories are the best um, because they're you know they become part of local legend. But again, remind me of what what was the date of the Kentucky Meat Shower? So it's eighteen seventy six. Eighteen seventy six. So clearly not an airplane. You know, nothing falling out of an airplane or anything. Um, and then, yeah, exactly. Did, did did any of the reports, the contemporary reports, indicate whether the meat looked like it was you know uh, you know cut by a, a, a sharp object like a knife or did it look like it was roadkill kind of me i mean do do you get any sense of that you know i the sense that i got yeah it didn't it didn't seem to be like you know prepared and in any way it seemed to be just sort of kind of ragged chunks one way or the other um there's a great story so the the uh, new york user i think it's the new york herald sends a reporter out to olympia springs to see if he can you know figure it out because it becomes a national news story right so the new york herald sends a reporter out he gets himself a sample of the meat, and he's like, "Well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to eat this crap." So he uh, <laughs> he he goes down. He he hires somebody he describes as an Irish laborer, and he says, "Okay, I'm going to pay this this laborer to to eat this meat and tell me what it's like." So so the guy agrees to do it, and um, you know you have this image of this this reporter sitting across from this 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 you know kind of working guy at a table, and on the table in front of him, uh, you know, some bar or something, and there's just this hunk of mysterious sky meat, and you know the, the the Irish guy starts to have second thoughts. So the first thing he says is, you know, well, I, you know, I can't have meat without like uh, something to wash it down, right? And so the reporter's like, all right, all right, and he gets him a, you know, a shot of whiskey, and he's like, all right, now you got you got some whiskey, you know, have it to me. And you know the Irish guy's still not not having it. He's like, you know what, you you, you got to have sides, right? You can't just have meat without you know your veggies or whatever. And so like. The reporter's got to, you know, then get him a bunch of, you know, you know, I don't know, potatoes and broccoli or whatever. And, you know, it's like, okay, you know, now it's time to get the meat. And the guy's <laughs> still stalling for time. And then finally just says, oh, you know, I just remembered it's Lent. I can't eat meat uh. during Lent. And he just splits and takes off. <laughs> oh, wow. Now, is it true that you also managed to actually track down a piece of this meat that has been preserved? Yeah. So this is another thing that blew my mind is that there is still a piece of meat from the great Kentucky meat shower. And, I, and again, it was, I didn't know this when I started writing the book or started looking into this. It was sort of late in, in the research process. I, I, I got word that at Transylvania University in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, the, this, uh, this art professor named Kurt Gody uh, knew of a uh, chunk of, of the great Kentucky sky meat. So I, you know, went out to, to Lexington and sure enough, he, you know, shows me this, this old bottle, uh, with this, you know, woods, you know, stopper. And then, and then in the faded script on the, on the label, it says Olympia Springs. And then there is this, this thing and, and, you know, this kind of alcohol preservative. And it's like, it's, 
it's kind of this, it's about an inch in diameter and it's puffy and it's white. It's maybe a little gelatinous. It's really, it's really gross and strange, but kind of beautiful in its own kind of way. And like, you know, it seems to be, you know, I mean, that as best, as best Kurt or anybody else can figure out, it seems to be, you know, the last extant piece of the great Kentucky meat shower. And, um, so, you know, a, I got to, I got to hang out with, with sky meat. Um, you know, one of the things is he, he did a, he got a DNA test done on it and the DNA test was, was inconclusive. So we don't know, we don't, we can't tell, you know, through modern means what, what kind of meat it was. It was just, I guess it's just, deteriorated too much you can't get a good dna sample but it's but it's there you know and again it's just like it's just this thing and i don't know what i don't know what to make of it other than it's cool and weird and it defies any conventional explanation and and there it sits and and the two possible uh identifications you gave us earlier said possibly horse meat possibly human infant depending on which of the two that that it is if it's one of those two the explanations would be completely different right I mean, those are two very yeah, different things. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that if it would, that those two possibilities are pretty different. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's like, and that's the thing about it is like you're so close to knowing what it is, but you, but it's it's just off enough that in fact right. it's like it's strange and uncanny. What if somebody? Kind of cool. What if somebody shot a cannon? Because there were cannon then, either like into a horse or even put a. <laughs> part of a horse into this cannon and shot it and you know that could travel quite a ways and that meat would rain down on people i suppose i mean i'm, just, I'm trying to think outside the box a little bit is, is that is that something is that something you do on your like saturdays you're like <laughs> no, ah, that's I, a board you know i already finished my chores let's, let's load up the cannon with some meat uh, you know but I've, I've, I've seen teenagers do crazy things with what they have available at this time so who knows maybe a bunch of teenagers had a cannon sitting around and the, the 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 family horse just got too close to it when they fired it. Who knows? Anyway, um, well, that, it's an amazing story. It really is. And the fact that the, the meat is actually stored at the University of Transylvania, and I know we're not talking about R- Romania here. We're talking about Kentucky, but still, what a perfect place for that meat to be kept. Oh, yeah, and it's, 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 it's cool. It's in this place called the Monroe Moosnick Museum. And, again, uh, Kurt and, uh, and another guy basically – just started going through all the the attic spaces in Transylvania University and pull it out. Just pulled out all this crazy stuff that had been, you know, completely forgotten about. So, like, it's it's if if you find yourself in Lexington, Kentucky, I absolutely recommend going to the Monroe Musnick Museum. It's filled with all sorts of weird wonders and kind of forgotten little magic mystery kind of strange stuff that has just been accumulating in the the you know crawl spaces of Transylvania University for the past. 240 years or however old that place is. That's really cool. I'm going to have to put that on my list. In the book, you also talk about the Gloucester. Is it Gloucester? Is that how you pronounce that? The sea serpent? Uh, I, I, I always get in trouble with Massachusetts pronunciation. You know, it's like Worcester. Like I can Gloucester, never, yeah. like, you know. Uh, so Gloucester, let's say Gloucester. And, Gloucester. And people from Massachusetts, feel free to yell at me and, you know, curse my family or they whatever. Will. They will. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they will. I know. I know. I spent a couple of years in Concord, Massachusetts when I was a kid. I, I know I know the stakes here, but yeah, I believe it's Gloucester, Massachusetts. Yeah. So the, the, there was a, a sea serpent sighted in, in Gloucester at some point, witnessed by a bunch of people. This is not a story that you hear a lot of. Uh, you know, and it bothers me. I you know, like I get I get upset about it. you know you know one of the things is like 
like you hear about you hear about Bigfoot, you hear about the Loch Ness monster, you hear about the Jersey Devil, whatever. But almost always, it's like it's like the sightings are like like one guy, right? It's like a guy who like wanders into a clearing, he sees Bigfoot, he you know grabs his camera, maybe gets a blurry kind of out of focus shot, or maybe gets a couple frames on a Super Eight camera or something like that, and that's like that's like the best you're going to get, right? Um, the thing about the Gloucester Sea Serpent is it was witnessed by literally hundreds of people. And it wasn't just like one time. It wasn't just like one fleeting thing. It was like this thing hung out in Gloucester Bay off of Cape Ann, Massachusetts for like, uh, I think, uh, weeks. Um, and it was basically this sea serpent that uh, people started seeing on boats, but they also saw it on land. It was eyewitnesses sort of pegged it at somewhere between 20 and 100 feet uh, some people sort of uh, uh, peg the, the diameter of the sea serpent as, like, the width of a barrel. So what is that, you know, two, three feet? So we're talking about, like, a big animal, supposedly. And, and again, it was, like, it was there, and it was, it was there predictably. You had people coming up from Boston on the weekend, taking a day trip up to Cape Ann as, like, a thing you would do. It's like, well, you know, not much else going on. Let's, you know, we've already fired meat out of the cannon. What else is there to do? Let's go up to... Gloucester Bay and see the sea serpent. And so like, so I feel like among cryptids, this is, this one gets, this one deserves um, a lot more airtime than I think it gets precisely because it, 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 it's so much more, it was so much more visible and, um, and prominent and predictable than, you know, the kind of usual kind of cryptid sighting, which is fleeting and, you know, once in a lifetime kind of thing. And, the um, I think the community there still commemorates these sightings. Yeah, well, there. Yeah, if you go down, if you go down to the beach where where it was seen, um, there's you know this big boulder on the beach, and uh, there's a there's an artist who painted a kind of mural of the Gloucester Sea Serpent. And to me, what it reminds me of, I don't know if you ever played um, Dungeons and Dragons. Um, I, I did. But if you if you know the you know the logo of Dungeons and Dragons, sure, the yeah. Sam to the and the and which is you know sort of coiled like a dragon, like that's what this mural kind of looks like. It's like that kind of thin, kind of coiled up on itself, kind of you know sea serpent. And so yeah, so it's you know again, it doesn't have the same kind of tourist cachet as something like you know uh, Nessie and Loch Ness or you know something like that. But I think it's kind of a cooler story, and I, I was kind of I was I was really pleased to. to to tell it and kind of, you know, again, do this kind of research that kind of brought a different kind of cryptid to the forefront and kind of talked about it in a different way. It was kind of, you know, it was definitely one of the more fun moments of the book for me. When people talk about cryptids, uh, they basically are talking about a a species that has not been recognized by science um, or defined by science. But scientists won't... um, consider in many cases these to be undiscovered species they again just put that hand in the face but yet scientists are discovering new species all the time this is not an unusual thing so why are cryptids kind of the outcast yeah it's it's really interesting you know uh lauren coleman who i'm sure uh some of your listeners know who who runs the international cryptozoology museum in portland maine um you know i mean he's you know if you if you know that place the the logo is the the coelacanth, which was this prehistoric fish that um, was thought to be extinct, and then a um, you know a, a naturalist in I think 1920s in South Africa like found uh, a dead coelacanth in a in a fisherman's net, and then subsequently was able to locate you know live 
you know, coelacanth, so that, you know, it turns out it wasn't extinct at all. It was still living, you know. So, like, so Lauren's whole idea is, like, you know, there are a lot of animals that we used to think were mythological or, you know, magical or something like that that turned out to be real, right? You know, um, the great panda bear is another one that people yeah. thought the great panda bear was like a myth until, right. you know, whatever, like the 1880s or whatever, when they were able, finally able to see a live one. And, like, you know, so there, there are examples of, of these creatures who we think are kind of mythological, but then they, they turn out to be real. And so, so it does happen. And I think that, you know, that's, that's, again, it's like one of these things where like, yeah, like I think that, that people in the scientific you know community could be a little bit more open-minded about some of the stuff, because I do think that there is kind of a bleed over more often than we think. Um, but I also think it's fair to say, I mean, my feeling about, you know, Bigfoot is I feel like it was it, it, personally, it was a little easier for me to believe Bigfoot in like the 50s and 60s when, you know, people didn't have cameras or, you know, uh, movie cameras on them at all times. Yeah. But now everybody's got a freaking phone, right? Like yeah. you've got like a high def phone on, like a high def camera on your, you know, on your body at all times. You'd think if people were going to find a Bigfoot out in the forest that they would get it on camera and they would put it on social media you know it's sort of like like where is it by now like why haven't we seen it if everybody's got these great cameras in their pockets so you know who knows who knows if there's an answer to that question but i you know i think it's it is fascinating to see how these these kind of beliefs kind of wax and wane with these kind of new technologies yeah and i and i you know i'm in the same camp i'm very open-minded and i love talking to people we've had many on the program that fully believe in Bigfoot, Bigfoot's existence, and they, they have a lot of personal anecdotes and personal evidence to support their ideas. However, you know, like you said, the camera's in everybody's pocket. I mean, you know, this, that's that was unheard of 30 years ago, so, um, you know, it's a very different world. But and add to that, and I've heard something the other day that made me very curious about this, too. Add to that the fact that we have these um, uh, thermal um, uh, cameras that it, you you can put on a drone, hover above the forest, and they can see the body signature, the heat signature of any living creature that emits heat. You know, for tens and, and scores of miles. And somebody the other day said, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna uh, we came up with this brilliant idea to use a thermal camera in the search for Bigfoot." I'm thinking, why haven't we been doing that for the last twenty years? I mean, I don't know how long those cameras have been you know, available to the consumer at a reasonable price, but they certainly have been for the last 10 years. And it just seems like that would be a no-brainer. Yeah, oh, yeah. Well, I hope that, I mean, I'd be really interested to see what they come up with because, yeah, I mean, it seems like seems like we have the technology now to find these things if they're out there. And, you know, maybe it's just a, a, a matter of, you know, nobody's had the time or the resources, but, you know, hopefully... You know, if there's something to find, we sh- we should we should have the tools by now to find it. So you know, we'll, we'll I guess we'll see what happens in the next couple of years. Not to mention that you've got satellites circling the globe that can take pictures. I mean, has anybody looked at you know Google Maps and zoomed into street level? I mean, some of those are taken from you know from from the street, but the overhead shots coming from the satellites, you can get a lot of detail. I'm and so most of the. Earth is being uh, observed by satellites 24 hours a day. It just seems like we'd be able to catch something if it was there. Again, I'm not going to discount it completely, but man, it's harder and harder to 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 think that if it was there, we wouldn't have caught some evidence at this point. Yeah, I mean, I feel the I feel the same way. And again, I you know I I don't want to discount anything. I want to keep an open mind, but I also yeah, yeah like. 
I guess I guess we'll see. I guess we'll we'll see what happens in the next couple of years. I now, guess. now the famous actor Jimmy Stewart. He, he did he have something to do with cryptid hunting as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is another cool story that I just. I, you know, I don't know if you, if, if uh, other other writers on your show have had this experience with, like, you, you find this one thing and you're like, oh, yeah, that's uh, the book just kind of fell into place. And, like, there's this crazy story about this Yeti hand in Nepal, right? Okay, so there is uh, there's supposedly this monastery that has this Yeti, this preserved Yeti hand. And so, you know, pilgrims would come and they would, they would see this Yeti hand, and uh, and there's this... This American uh, kind of billionaire philanthropist, this guy Tom Slick, who's really into cryptids, and he's, he's funding all these Yeti uh, expeditions in the Himalayas. And he, he, he gets to know this, this Irish explorer, Patrick Byrne. He says, okay, you know, go to, the, go to the monastery and see if you can get this Yeti hand. We'll find out what's going on. So Patrick Byrne goes there, and the, and the, the, the monks are like, uh, no, you cannot have our Yeti hand. That's ours. We like it. Please go away. So he goes back. And um, he goes back to Tom Slick and says, you know, nothing doing. They're, they're not going to give me the hand. And so Tom Slick is like, well, you're going to have to steal it, right, which is not great. Not great, Tom, but okay. So that's, you know, so, he, so Patrick's like, you know, what, what am I going to do? I'm going to have to replace it with something. I'm going to, I'm going to, you guys got to, I'm going to, I'm going to need a, another dried hand, right? So Tom Slick, apparently, as Patrick Byrne later recounted, comes back um, with a, brown paper bag and dumps a mummified human hand on the table and says, there you go. <laughs> so, so Patrick Byrne goes back to Nepal. He goes back to the monastery. He gets the monk who's on Yeti hand guard duty, uh, drunk, gets him passed out, swaps the hands out, takes the Yeti hand and escapes out of Nepal. He ends up in, in India. But the question is, how are you going to get a contraband Yeti hand out of India, right? And um, and he talks to Tom Slick, and Tom Slick's like, "All right, go to the go to the Calcutta Hotel and talk to Jimmy Stewart, the actor." Um, and so, what apparently happens, uh, and this, you know, again, this is, I couldn't believe that I, I double and triple checked this because I just could not believe the story was true. But it's verified by multiple sources that what happened is Jimmy Stewart and his wife agreed to smuggle this stolen Yeti hand out of India back to England by hiding it in his wife's lingerie case, <laughs> uh, no, knowing full well that the English customs officers were not going to, like, go rooting around in a famous actor's wife's underwear. And sure enough, they, they didn't, and uh, that's how they smuggled the, the, the Yeti hand into England. And, um, and, and once, they, once they got it back, it turned out that it was actually just a human hand. And it's sort of like... It's kind of a reminder, like it had a kind of cool magic and power as long as it was in that monastery. Yeah. But once these, you know, these, uh, you know, Westerners decided they were just going to, you know, violate these these monks, uh, you know, uh, monastery and, and make off with this thing, it kind of, you know, unsurprisingly, it lost all its magic and it, it just wasn't the same. Let's, uh, because we're going to run out of time, let's change the subject because you cover so much in this book. Let's talk about UFOs a little bit. Um, tell us about the types of UFO sightings that you uh, explored when you're writing the book and, and how the curve of UFO sightings has been changing over the course of the years. I thought this was really fascinating because, you know, uh, again, I mean, if you think about like the Loch Ness Monster, you, the idea of what the Loch Ness Monster looks like hasn't really changed since there were first sightings in the 1930s. But like 
thing about UFOs is like, uh, again, whether or not you're a believer or not, and I, again, I'm pretty agnostic. I don't know what I myself believe. I have a real open mind. But, it, but I was really fascinated to see that, like, culturally, the way that we imagine UFOs has changed so dramatically in the past, like, even just, like, you know, 60, 70 years, right? That, like, in the 1950s, I think I said this before, you know, in the 1950s, it was, like, guys in silver jumpsuits with, like, long, flowing hair and blue eyes, and they were, like, you know, we, they, they, the whole thing, you know, the kind of 1950s, you know, we come in peace, we're going to give you a utopian civilization as soon as you abandon nuclear weapons and all this kind of stuff. And, like, and that changes into the 60s and 70s to this idea that, no, actually, they're, they're humanoid, but they don't really look like us, and now they kind of secretly abduct us and wipe our memories and probe various orifices. And, and that's how, you know, so I, th- I thought it was just really fascinating to kind of trace the different ways in which we, our belief about these things has changed so dramatically in such a short amount of time. And again, I think regardless of what you actually think, you know, aliens, whether they exist and what they actually are, I think it's, it's fair to say that I think like kind of on a cultural level, we have kind of shifted our understanding of what these things are, maybe to kind of, you know, either fit our, our contemporary anxieties or our, you know, kind of cultural obsessions of the moment, which I think is kind of a weird but kind of recurring facet of, of, of this belief system. There's a famous sighting over Mount Rainier. Tell us about that one. That's kind of the beginning of, you know, I guess what you would call like the modern UFO sighting. One of the things that's, that's cool about that sighting is this guy, Kenneth Arnold, who is a pilot, and he's, he's a well-respected guy. He's, you know, he's not a crank. He's not known to, you know, lie or hallucinate. And he is out flying solo over Mount Rainier, and he sees these, uh, these silver, um, you know, flying objects, and and he describes them as sort of bat wing shaped, um, uh, but he doesn't know what they are. He he thinks I don't know, maybe maybe it's Russia, maybe it's you know, Soviet Union has some weird, you know, uh, spy craft or some weapon or something like that. So he lands this plane. He goes to the FBI, wants to tell the FBI, but the FBI office is closed because it's Saturday, so he doesn't know what to do. So he goes to the newspaper and he tells the newspaper. Uh, the local newspaper in, you know, somewhere in, uh, I think, like, Bend, Oregon, uh, you know, just to get this story out. And, you know, as I said, he, he described them as batwing-shaped, but he says they, fl- they were flying like saucers skipped over the water. And, you know, so he uses that word saucers as, as a metaphor to talk about how they're flying. But somehow through the course of the, the newspaper sort of, you know, writing the story and then it getting picked up by the AP wire and spread out, um, it gets the, the details get altered and it becomes about, you know, quote unquote flying saucers. So like the beginning of the flying saucer story and this kind of, you know, craze of flying saucers is actually turns out to be a kind of just odd mistranslation of Kenneth Arnold trying to explain how these things moved across the sky. And then there's another story about um, Gloria Lee, who was a contactee, and you include this story in your book. I, this was, I mean, there's something so tragic about Gloria Lee, but it's also, I mean, it's such a, I, I think it's a story that really speaks to the time. She was a, she was a flight attendant who then began um, receiving messages from a uh, being from the planet Venus whose name was J.W., right? And J.W. Uh, told Gloria Lee, you know, about kind of the utopian Venusian society. And among other things, the, the Venusians were really into free love, right? You know, like, uh, J.W. was like, you know, we, we got to move beyond, you know, single heterosexual coupling, and you should just have 
you know, amorous relationships with whomever you want, because that's how we do it in Venus. And look at us, we're doing great, right? So, so unsurprisingly, an attractive woman with a message of free love, it, you know, it takes off, right? So she gets, she gets pretty famous. Um, and then JW tells her that she needs to go to Washington, D.C. and um, uh, share his blueprints for flying saucers with the Congress of the United States so that they can build these things and then kind of usher in the U.S. into a new golden age of peace and prosperity. So off she goes to Washington, D.C. I think she's from L.A. Uh, she goes off to Washington, D.C., and it turns out Congress is not interested in her uh, <laughs> flying saucers um, blueprint. And so J.W. says to her, okay, here's what you got to do. Get a hotel and go on a hunger strike. And you just don't eat anything until either they start listening to you or, if need be, I will send down a flying saucer and, and take you up to Venus. And so Gloria Lee is in this Washington, D.C. hotel for, like, I think, like two months before her husband back in L.A. gets a call from the hotel manager that's like, you gotta, you got to do something about your wife. She's very, she's very ill because she hasn't eaten anything in two months. Uh, and they call an ambulance for her, and, and unfortunately, she dies on the way to the hospital from extreme malnourishment because she was on this hunger strike for two months, and nobody could stop her from not eating. And so, like, so again, it's sort of you know, it's it's sad and it's tragic that this you know this young woman died, and it also sort of speaks to the kind of way in which these 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 stories kind of took on a life of their own, and sometimes even the people telling them kind of lost control of them. Um, but, you know, there is a postscript, you know, the publishing company that had published her, her first book, Why We Are Here, uh, felt that Gloria was such an important bestseller for them that even her being dead wasn't going to stop them from uh, making money off of her. So they continued to publish books after her death that were supposedly uh, communicated to, her, to them from beyond the grave via spiritual mediums, and they continued to make a buck off of uh, poor Gloria. Really? So they had somebody who claimed to be channeling Gloria and, and writing down these messages and publishing them. Yeah, yeah, they probably, yeah. There were uh, Gloria, quote unquote, Gloria Lee published, I think, two or three books after her death. Wow, wow. But I did note that while nobody could stop her on the hunger strike, that uh, flying saucer from Venus never came to take her either. Yeah, which is a real, if I can say, a real jerk move on the part of our sure. friend J.W. I yeah. mean, it's one thing if you're going to, you know, like demand, demand this kind of devotion, but you should at least, you know, send down the rescue flying saucer as far as I'm concerned. So um, the book is is available now, Colin? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's out now. Uh, anywhere you, you, you buy books, it should be there. And just to, because you've written a few books here, uh, we mentioned their names like Ghostland and cranioclepti. Um, is there any particular order you recommend people read your work in, or they can start with any book they want? Uh, well, you know, I, I mean, I I like this this one. I, you know, I think it and Ghostland are, are probably you know probably my favorites. The other two are are kind of funky and weird, but uh, I think between Ghostland and the Unidentified, you get a, a pretty wide sweep of some kind of weird stuff and maybe some unexpected stories that you 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 hadn't heard before hopefully you haven't heard before you know, so you've, that's you, my goal you, you've obviously written about ghosts in ghostland and american history and haunted places did you do anything with ghosts in the unidentified 
Uh, I didn't, I, just in the sense that I had really, you know, I felt like I had kind of done that once. I didn't want to kind of go back to the well. I mean, there there's certainly a little bit of overlap in the way that, you know, Madame Blavatsky sort of started as a spiritualist, and, you know, you see kind of parallels here and there, but I, I felt like I kind of kind of done that, and I didn't want to kind of keep going back uh, over and over to the same ground. Colin, this was always, um, it's always fun to have you on the program. I always get, a, a, first of all, a lot of great information, some great stories, and a laugh or two along the way as well. Promise you'll come back after you write your next book, because I'm sure you've got another one in the works somewhere. Oh, yeah, that would be great. I'd love to come back. I had a great time. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.